Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Uh, Being a pastor, I mean, Easter Sunday is a little bit like Super Bowl Sunday. And I kind of get a little bit, you know, just like super energetic all day. Uh, I know for a fact that I have hugged people on their way in this morning that didn't know me yet. And I'm sorry for that. I apologize. I just got caught up in the moment. Uh, This is my apology to you. But I was, I'm excited about what we're doing. And it's like the Super Bowl for me, not because I'm competing with anybody or because I've earned my way here. Those, Those certainly aren't the case but this is like Super Bowl Sunday for us because Easter is really the main event of our faith. This is the Sunday like no other Sunday because the resurrection of Jesus is the backbone, the foundation of everything else that the church does. All of the other Sundays, all of the other sermons, all of the other services, all of the other moments that we share together are built upon this foundation of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, one of the earliest missionaries in Christian history, a guy named Paul who planted churches all over the northern Mediterranean Sea region 2,000 years ago, he wrote this. He said, if Christ has not been raised, if the resurrection didn't happen, he said, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless, which is to say the resurrection really is the cornerstone of our connection together. It's the cornerstone of our relationship and our purpose together. So every year this week comes along and I'm preparing a message and I'm looking forward to preaching specifically about resurrection being the culmination and the inspiration for all of the rest of my preaching. And every week, every year while I'm prepping for this message, I notice that my study actually deepens my conviction about the meaning and the significance and the truth of the resurrection. And I didn't want to be stingy with that this year. And so before I jump into the rest of everything I've prepared, I just wanted to tell you that I've created a page on our website with some resources that I think could be helpful to you as you consider what resurrection means and the historical validity of the resurrection. It's fine if you want to like take a snapshot of that, you know, or just go to the Heritage website and search resurrection and you'll find it. But I've included some videos from some trusted theological scholars that I, that I think highly of as they talk about the historical veracity, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And I think that if you spend some time with some of those videos and those scholars, it could be helpful to you in your spiritual journey as well. I know, I know And Sarah mentioned this in the welcome. This seems like a story that's too good to be true. But if it's true, I mean, if it's true, it's too good to ignore, isn't it? So here we are. And this morning, I want to start my message by talking to you about the process of decision-making. 
You know, researchers say that decision-making is the process of considering the options that are available to you and then making uh, coming to a conclusion about which of those options would be most appropriate for you. And they say that the average person makes about 70 decisions every day, which is when you have multiple options and you have to take time to consider which one you're going to pick. And so if you make 70 a day, over the course of a decade, that comes up to about a quarter of a million decisions, and over the course of an average lifetime, it's about two million decisions that you're going to make. And many of those decisions, a lot of those decisions are going to seem small and insignificant. For example, later this week, if you find yourself walking into the grocery store and you discover that there's an aisle where they have clearance Easter candy, Okay, you're going to have some decisions to make. And you're going to walk down that aisle, and right next to each other, you're going to see the Cadbury cream eggs and the Cadbury caramel eggs. And I hope that you're going to know that the right decision is both. <laughs> They're on clearance. Treat yourself. You know, like. Go ahead and get them both. They're both worth it. You know, like that's the right answer in this situation. And then if you keep walking further down that clearance aisle and you suddenly find yourself looking at an assortment of cotton candy peeps and party cake peeps and fruit punch peeps, then you know that the right decision is... That's right. Keep walking. Those are the same peeps they were trying to sell three years ago. They just put them in the back and waited. I mean, like they've been there for a long time. You don't want to touch those and peeps are nasty, right? Like you may have strong feelings about your Easter candy choices, but those are the kind of small, trivial choices that really don't make a big difference in this life. They're inconsequential. It doesn't really matter what you choose. And in fact, you can choose wrong and everything will probably still turn out okay. That's what most of our decisions are like. But on the other hand, there are some decisions, a handful of decisions, a, a percentage of those two million decisions that you're going to make in this life that are vitally important. Some of the decisions that you're going to make in this life are the kinds of decisions that will determine the course and the trajectory of where the rest of your life goes. In fact, it's been said that in the end, your life is just the sum total of all of the decisions that you made along the way. And when it comes to life's biggest decisions, when it comes to the ones that really matter, your choices are determined by your worldview. They're determined by the way that you've been trained and the way that you've taught yourself to see the world. The way that you've been trained to think about who you are and what other people are like and how the world around you works. And of course, there's a lot of different worldviews out there. A few years ago, GQ magazine did something it does annually. They published a list of men who were making significant impacts or making a big splash in our culture. This was nine or 10 years ago. And so they have multiple awards that they award to different men who are making this big difference, supposedly. And the, the winner of the leading man of the year award was an actor you all know, Matthew McConaughey, good Texas guy, right? 
And he had recently been making some significant changes in some of the goals that he had for himself as an actor and some of the scripts that he was interested in and the movies that he was choosing. And they asked him, they said, tell us about this evolution that's happened inside of you. And this is what he said. He said, I, in recent years, I got much more selfish. He said, I'm a fan of the word selfish, self-ish. When I say I've gotten a lot more selfish, I mean that I'm less concerned with what people think of me. I'm not worried about how I'm perceived. Selfish has always gotten a bad rap. And then listen to this. He says, you should do for you. And that's a worldview. That's a way of seeing the world and imagining how we interact and imagining how every th the deck is stacked and thinking about here's what's gonna be the best way for me to approach this life. And it stood in pretty stark contrast to an interview that happened just a couple of pages later in the same magazine. There was a man who was awarded the uh, title of life coach of the year that year. His name was George Saunders. And when he was asked, what does it take to be a decent human being? He said, the big kahuna of all moral questions, as far as I'm concerned, is ego. How do you correct the fundal, fundamental misperception that we're all born with, the idea that I am central? He said, all the nasty stuff in life comes out of that misunderstanding. And that's a worldview. That's a worldview that stands in contrast to the other one. You had one worldview in the first pages of the magazine that said, do for yourself. And then you had a second worldview that was posited out there that said, get over yourself. And the thing about those two choices, those two options is that you can't choose both. It's not like the Cadbury eggs. You can't choose both. This is a mutually exclusive decision, a one or the other decision. And that's how it goes with most of the big, important decisions you have to make in this life. They're like forks in the road. You have to choose a path. You have to decide one way or another. And the question I want to put before you this morning is, what do you do when your worldview, your way of making decisions, your way of seeing the world is challenged? What do you do when everything that you thought you understood and everything that you have been taught and everything that you believed to be true suddenly gets flipped upside down? Because I believe that 2,000 years ago, everybody who had an encounter with Jesus Christ had that experience. Everybody who met Jesus, everybody who listened to Jesus, everybody who watched the way that Jesus taught, healed, interacted, laughed, and lived. Every one of those people had their worldview challenged. They had their expectations upended. And it happened to people from every walk of life whenever they encountered Jesus. There were some people who encountered Jesus who were not particularly religious, and they would have said that about themselves. But when they met Jesus, this particularly religious guy, somebody who was faithful about participating in ritual and festivals and religious observance his whole life, when they met him, they were shocked. They were shocked at how accepting he was. 
They were shocked at how gentle he was. They were shocked at how non-judgmental he was. He was like no rabbi that they'd ever seen before. Then there were people who were, who were extremely religious, people who thought of themselves as the leaders of everybody else in their community who is religious. And you know what their experience was when they met Jesus? They were shocked too. They were shocked because he seemed to be unimpressed by their religion. He seemed to be unimpressed by their self-righteous rule following. He seemed to be unconcerned with their traditions and unconcerned with their hierarchies. He was like no rabbi that they had ever seen either. And so here was Jesus defying the worldview of everybody that he met, upending their expectations. He challenged people to believe that God is bigger and better, more graceful and more inclusive, more loving and more just than they had ever imagined. He was upending their worldview and their expectations. But in the end, there were some people who just couldn't go there. Some people who just couldn't believe it. They listened to some of the claims that Jesus made. They listened to some of the teaching that he delivered, some of the reinterpretation of things they'd been hearing their entire lives that Jesus shared. And they thought, I can't do it. There were some people who wouldn't believe what Jesus was trying to share with them, trying to reveal to them. And the truth is that even today, a lot of people still don't. But the resurrection, this idea that Jesus was somebody who rose from the dead, the resurrection is a compelling piece of evidence that made a lot of people back then and might make a lot of people today reconsider the way they make decisions. You know, from the earliest days of Jesus's ministry, he had opponents. I mean, we don't have to get very far into the Gospels. Mark chapter 2 talks about people who were upset at what they saw Jesus doing. Sometimes Jesus offended everyday ordinary people. Sometimes he offended his family. Sometimes he offended the people from his hometown who just couldn't understand the message he was trying to share, didn't understand why he wouldn't do some of the healings and the miraculous signs in his hometown that he was doing elsewhere, and so they were offended by that. But most of the time, most of the time, Jesus's main opposition came from religious leaders. Most of the time, his opposition came from people who were the teachers of religion, the people whose authority was being called into question and was being threatened by Jesus's teaching. They felt disrespected by the way that Jesus called out inconsistencies in their life and leadership. They felt offended because Jesus dared to say that his words were actually the words of God. They accused him over and over of breaking the law because he was interested in helping people and healing people even on days when they taught that nothing that active should be done. They witnessed his miracles, but they wanted to deter people from following him, and so they blamed him. They attributed his power to the power of evil. They were appalled at the people that Jesus chose to spend time with, the people that Jesus chose to eat with. They couldn't believe he was always hanging out with the very people that they worked hard to avoid. And in every recorded account of Jesus' life, 
These religious leaders, these teachers, were always looking for a reason, trying to come up with an excuse, trying to set a trap so that they could attribute, Jesus, attribute to Jesus statements that were blasphemous and that would put an end to his preaching. And finally, after years of pursuit, after years of trying to set just the right trap, they put their plan into action. With the help of one of his disciples who was willing to throw Jesus under the bus, these religious leaders, the priests, the teachers, they came and found Jesus and arrested him. Not in the middle of the day, not in the public square. They arrested him under the cover of darkness. The trial they put him through was an absolute sham. Nothing but lying witnesses and trumped up charges that were just deliberated in secret in the middle of the night. Eventually, they moved on and took him to the palace where the Roman governor of that region lived. And they came up with more accusations and more charges to levy against him so that the Roman governor would become concerned that maybe he was a threat to the peace. It didn't work. The Roman governor couldn't find any reason to bring charges against Jesus. Kept trying to set the man free, but the teachers, the priests, they wouldn't give up. They demanded a death sentence for Jesus, and eventually they got their wish. And you have to understand that if you were to talk to any one of those people, if you were to talk to any one of those leaders as they were in the process of all of this strategizing and conniving to try to do away with Jesus, they would have said that they were trying to protect their faith and their religion and their nation they would have said that Jesus was a danger to the way of God. They thought that they were honoring God by maintaining this strict system of laws and rituals and rules and boundaries that had been handed down to them from the generation before and the generation before and the generation before. Their worldview said that our goal should be to observe rules as precisely as possible with strict accounting to usher in the arrival of this Messiah God had promised who would theoretically free the nation from their Roman occupiers. And so they didn't need some upstart, uncredentialed know-it-all telling them that their rituals were missing the point. And when Jesus showed up and said he was the Messiah, they couldn't believe their ears. He looked like nothing that they had anticipated Nothing like what they were looking for. They were hoping for a national champion, and instead they got a nuisance. And so they had to do away with him. They had him crucified, the most painful, shameful, torturous death that Rome could dream up. Crucifixion was meant to send a message through suffering so that everybody who looked and saw a man hanging on a cross would know that they shouldn't cross the Romans. It was a Friday morning when they killed Jesus. Passover weekend in Jerusalem, which meant that there were thousands and thousands of visitors who had come to town and were visiting the city, which meant that thousands and thousands of people were aware of what was happening on the hill right outside the gate. They heard, they saw, they knew what was happening to Jesus. They witnessed the brutality. They saw the blood flowing. And the Romans were masters of cruelty. And so they drug the process out for a number of hours to make sure that the suffering was a good warning to everybody else. But by noon, they were sure he was dead. 
and they released his body to be buried in a tomb with a large stone rolled in front of the entrance. And with that, these priests and these teachers thought to themselves, okay, that problem is behind us. That issue has been taken care of. We can put that to rest and we can prepare to move on to other urgent matters. And Jesus is dead and he'll soon be forgotten in the same way that the leaders of all of the other messianic movements before him have been forgotten. The disciples will give up and we won't hear anything else about him. But then on Sunday morning, on Sunday morning, the unexpected happened because these women who had been friends of Jesus, followers of Jesus, these women who wanted to honor their friend's body showed up at the tomb to anoint the body with oil and spices, but they got there and they found that the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. They were greeted by two angels who told them that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they were shell-shocked. They were dumbstruck by that. They didn't know what to do with that. But later that same day, Jesus himself, with scars in his hands and in his feet, Jesus himself showed up, greeted them, spent time with them. And not only them, Jesus spent time with hundreds of his followers. He cooked food. He ate meals. He walked and talked. He, he, he taught and he encouraged. He stayed with them stayed with his followers for nearly six weeks, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then he gave them this assignment. He said, I want you to be the people who testify about what you've experienced. I want you to be the people who tell other people about me. And they didn't have to wait very long. They didn't have to wait long for an opportunity because in a matter of days, God overwhelmed them with the gift of the Holy Spirit and they were empowered and encouraged and equipped to speak publicly in Jesus's name. And in the very first public address by a Christian following the resurrection of Jesus, one of Jesus' best friends, a fisherman named Peter, addressed this crowd. It's recorded in Acts chapter 2. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament portion of your Bible. And it's a long sermon recorded there in that chapter, but it includes this statement from Peter. He said, fellow Israelites... Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, which just means he was from the village of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene was a man whose credentials God proved to you through miracles, wonders, and signs, which God performed through him among you. You yourselves know this. And what's fascinating to me is that there was no objection from the crowd in this moment. Nobody in the crowd raised their hand and said, what are you talking about? Miracles, wonders, and signs. Because everybody knew. Everybody had heard. Many people had seen. Everybody knew somebody who had been affected, touched, healed by the ministry of Jesus. But Peter went on and he said, in accordance with God's established plan and foreknowledge, Jesus was betrayed and you, with the help of wicked men, referring to these leaders, these priests, these governors, you had Jesus killed by nailing him to a cross. And then Peter delivers this last verse. He says, but God raised him up. God freed him from death's dreadful grip. 
since it was impossible for death to hang on to Jesus. This is the very first sermon about the resurrection of Jesus, the very earliest example of what the first Christians believed and taught. And in it, Peter said, there was no basis for death to hold on to Jesus. You've seen the cop shows, right? You've seen the police movies. It always happens the same way. They're trying to get to the bottom of the case, trying to figure out exactly who's at fault, who's guilty, and who's done what. And a suspect gets brought in for questioning, and they've got that special room with the handcuffs that are attached to the table, you know, that questioning room. And there's one-way glass so that the people outside can see what the suspect is doing. And the detectives come in, sometimes one, two, three at a time. And they take different approaches and they try to extract a confession and they try to play the good cop, bad cop role and find out exactly what this suspect is going to offer. But then sometimes, sometimes they can't make anything stick. Sometimes there's not enough evidence to make a case. And when there's not enough evidence, what do the detectives have to do? They have to let them go. They have to let them go, right? Because there's no basis for a charge against them. There's no basis for holding them. There's no justification for keeping them confined. And that's what Peter is saying happened to Jesus. He said, even though Jesus died, Jesus was vindicated. He was acquitted of the charges against him. There was no basis for judgment against Jesus. He was put on trial. He was accused of being too liberal with his forgiveness, too generous with his grace, too welcoming of sinners, too merciful toward people. And though he was known for all of those things, forgiveness, graciousness, welcome, and mercy, God put a stamp of approval on Jesus's life and work and ministry. God put a stamp of approval on Jesus and determined that death couldn't hold Jesus. And so Jesus was raised. Jesus escaped from the clutches of death, rescued, released from the grave, resurrected, never to die again. The verdict is in. The decision has been made. The charges have been dropped because Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. He's the Messiah that was sent to be the savior of the world and death can't hold him. And when you come to understand that, when you hear that, when you come to believe that, when you recognize that everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did and every claim he made and everything Jesus taught has God's stamp of approval, then you have to ask yourself, what does that mean for me? How do I respond to the approval that God has endorsed the life and the teaching and the ministry of Jesus. You see, Jesus is challenging your worldview too. Jesus is challenging each and every one of us in the way that we see the world because our natural inclination, our automatic way of operating is to live for ourselves. Self-ish, he said, right? But Jesus is inviting us to a different way Jesus is inviting us to return evil with good, to return hatred with kindness, to return anger with compassion. Jesus is inviting us to make a decision to live his way. And he's already proven that his way leads to eternal 
life. And so at the end of his sermon in Acts chapter two, the crowd who was listening to Peter, they were convicted. They were inspired. They knew that this approval of Jesus, that the raising of Jesus from the dead required a response. And so they asked Peter, Peter, what should we do? What do we do? How do we respond to this news that you've helped us to understand? And Peter said, change your hearts and lives. Change who you are. Change how you approach the world. Change your worldview. Change the trajectory of where you're going. Each of you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the story goes that over 3,000 people that day, over 3,000 people made the life-changing, worldview-shifting decision to become followers of Jesus. They were baptized, and they began living their lives with new purpose and new trajectory, and the invitation still stands. C.S. Lewis is an author that you may recognize from the Chronicles of Narnia and other famous books that he's written, but he was a fabulous theological thinker. And he wrote this. He said, every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than what it was before. And taking your, whole, your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices all your life long, you're slowly turning this central part of yourself either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either into a creature that's in harmony with God and other creatures and with itself or into a creature that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. And he said, to be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. But to be the other creature, the hellish creature, that means madness and horror and idiocy and rage and impotence and eternal loneliness. And this is, don't miss this last line. He said, each of us at each moment in our life, each one of us is progressing toward one state or the other. You have to make a decision. You have to choose a path. It's like a fork in the road. This Easter Sunday, let me ask you, which direction is your life heading? Which direction is your heart oriented? More specifically, are you moving toward Jesus and the worldview that he's invited you to adopt, or are you moving away? Your spiritual life is the sum total of all of the spiritual decisions that you make along the way, but they start with this one. They start with this decision. Which worldview will you adopt? Which target will you aim for? Which destination are you trying to reach? It's like a fork in the road. You have to decide one way or another. You can't choose both like the Cadbury eggs. And Jesus says, here's a cheat sheet. God has approved Jesus's worldview. God has already endorsed Jesus's worldview. And so maybe for you, maybe today's the day that you decide. Maybe today's the day that you standing at that fork in the road and deciding whether to live for Jesus or live for self, 
whether to try to get yourself out of the way or put yourself on a pedestal. Maybe today's the day you decide to change your heart, to change your direction and your trajectory, to change your goals, to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe today is the day that you recommit yourself as you reflect on what it means to trust and obey Jesus. But whatever you do, don't hesitate because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Death had no power over Jesus. Death could not hold Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus changed the course of human history. The lingering question is, will the resurrection of Jesus change the future of your life and mine? I'm going to pray for you. And we're going to sing together. And we're going to have the opportunity to reflect on what this story means for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, it's a gift for us to be together, to reflect, to celebrate and commemorate and remember the story that shapes our larger story, the story you've invited us into. Father, to imagine, to imagine that Jesus could have chosen to avoid the cross, could have chosen to go a different way, but instead believed that love was the answer. Believe that someone who dedicates their life to you will be seen and rescued even from the clutches of death. Father, that conviction in Jesus has brought us here. It's made it possible for us to be here. And so, Father, we lean into your story together this morning. There are many of us who, who have experienced it's, it's, we're skeptical about this story, but God, we want it to be true. We need it to be true. Father, there's many of us who have experienced the, the clues of this story in our own life. We've seen you restore brokenness. We've seen you rescue. We've seen you heal. And we believe because of what we've seen that resurrection is part of our future as well. Father, wherever we are in this journey, I pray, Father, that the worldview you have for us of seeing ourselves as beloved, seeing our neighbors as children of God, seeing the world, the creation as your project. I pray you would continue to build that in us. May the story of resurrection not be a one-time event that we look to in history and celebrate once a year. But may the story of resurrection be the lens through which we see the world. And may we imagine that there is no dead thing that you can't restore. We pray in Jesus' name and amen.